Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Nick Reed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, mate. Looking forward to being here. Yeah, good to finally get you in. It's been a, been a little bit, but got you in. Yeah, no, nah, it's been a while, mate. I've been hard to catch, um, but... Now looking forward to having a chat, mate. Sweet. So let's get into it. Um, I've been following your football probably for the last four or five years, but I want to know where it sort of started. What got you into football? Yeah, so I um, I actually started playing soccer for about 13, 14 years of my life. Um, so I grew up sort of dwindle up way um, and played yeah played a lot of soccer for, um, for Sorrento too. And then pretty much... Um, when my family moved from Joondalup ways, we, we lived in Trigg for a couple of years and all my mates who went to Marmion ended up playing for Sorrento Duncraig, um, playing footy. And I just thought, look, to sort of have more in common with mates, I decided to um, play footy. So in that year, um, I'd played both footy and soccer. So mum and dad were taking me from soccer straight <laughs> to footy. So, um, you know, I was really... It was pretty hectic for them. I probably didn't appreciate it enough. But, um, yeah, so I ended up loving footy that year, like met some amazing people. This was only in year seven too. Yeah. Um, and then both sports started to get pretty serious. Um, so I had to make the decision coming into high school, what am I going to pick? Um, partly because mum didn't want to drop me uh, at two games <laughs> on a Sunday. But, yeah, ended up um, – making the decision to just swap to footy. So started actually playing properly full-time when I was 14 um, and made the switch from Sorrento Duncraig to North Beach. Um, and then, yeah, played pretty much my whole junior life with North Beach um, and played Colts in 2012 when I was 16 and had Bill Duckworth at the time who played A-grade um, watch me down there and um, – you know, he actually gave me my league debut when I was 16, so it was pretty pretty early. And, um, yeah, that sort of started things off for me. Yeah, 16 years old, league debut. Um, so where did it go from there? Did you go to any waffle clubs? Or Yeah, so 
in that year of 2012 when I played league um, under Bill, I I was down at Claremont for about um, six rounds and pretty much missed a lot of pre-season. Just, you know, I was very um, raw in terms of maturity. Um, I had a lot going on with school. So I dropped out of school at the end of year 10, start of year 11. Um, and I was, yeah, really, really young and just did not enjoy that environment so early on. Um, just the competitive nature and that structure just didn't suit me. So played about six games with Claremont, ended up making my debut in about round four um, and never actually played back-to-back games because I'd miss recovery constantly or I'd miss training. So um, was always in and out of the team early. And then I thought, come round six, I was like, I'm just not enjoying it. I want to ba- I want to be back playing with my mates at North Beach and ended up pulling the pin um, and then played about five, six years down at A grade. Yeah. Do you reckon that jump is too quick from like juniors where we're loving it to people are getting scouted at 14, 15, where you're, you're still a kid mm-hmm. trying to enjoy football. Do you reckon it jumps a bit quickly to professionalism? I think it also depends who you are. For me, if I had my time again, I reckon, you know, obviously you do a lot different. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. But um, I think for me as well, playing good footy has always been, I guess, playing good footy has always been alongside, am I actually having fun? Am I enjoying it? And when footy got really, really serious at that age, that sort of enjoyment factor... um, just stopped massively so I ended up resenting going to training resenting getting better um, because again I I don't think I was a balanced person at the time Um, so yeah I think I think everything in life has become really amplified and and things are becoming a lot more serious Um, but I guess it does depend on the nature of the person as well yeah do you feel like you placed because you're so young and sort of young and fragile do you feel like you place self-worth and your identity into football? Uh, a little bit, yeah. It's it's one of those things where um, there's a lot of common ground with footy and you meet a lot of mates. Um, and I found early doors as well, being first couple of years into high school, being a good footballer was associated with popularity to a degree. Um, so if you played well on the weekend or... Uh, people knew that you were, you know, a decent footballer. Um, I guess it made your social life a lot easier at school as well because it was, again, footy was a massive thing at high school. If you were good, you were sort of, um, you know, you were popular to a degree. Yeah. I feel like that's where you can go wrong, where you start to place your value into how you're performing because being a good footballer doesn't mean you're a good person. But I think... When you're getting validated, it's hard to it's hard to blur the lines because you're feeling good and you're performing good, and you think, oh, the like when I perform well, good things happen. So, you know, like you're young and you don't really understand, and there's not much education around it, is there? No, I don't think so. I think, um, I guess everyone wants to be, everyone wants to be liked, everyone wants to find common ground with people, and I think, um, particularly at a young age like that, being in high school and, and coming through, it's um, 
I guess it's very easy for people to establish themselves through sport and actually having your identity, um, you know, having your identity actually through that sort of, you know, avenue. So what happened when you went back to North Beach? Did you find the love for the game again? Yeah, so um, went back sort of halfway through the year and was playing um, Colts with a lot of high school friends um, who went to Korean as well. Um, still a sort of a, a bottom major because I was 16 at the time and just absolutely loved it. Um, we weren't winning too many games of footy then. We are pretty average, but um, in terms of just enjoyment, rocking up um, and just having fun, it was probably one of the the best years I've had in terms of that enjoyment factor. And that's when my footy actually started to, um, you know, get better because I wasn't actually thinking too much about the game. And that's when I think in terms of sport, I'm able, I'm able to play as good as I can when I actually just go out there and I don't give it too much thought. It's when I put pressure on myself that I start to go away from, um, you know, me being an instinctive footballer mm. and just person in general. So, um, yeah, it was a really good year and still keep in touch with like a lot of um, boys who played in that team. Um, and yeah, it was just a, yeah, it was a really fun year. What are some things that make yourself feel the pressure more? Is it when the game, when you start to progress into league football and waffle, is it because of the s- stakes of the game that you feel it? Yeah, I think um, oh, there's a range of things. It's for me, it's, pressure I put on myself like whatever I do my personality is how can I be better than anyone else and what what can I do um and also I guess particularly when I started getting older um and playing footy at a local community where I teach just down the road you'd have a lot of students come down and watch so it's always wanting to impress and make sure that I'm performing because people are watching so I sort of carried that with me so it was a bit of um external pressure through you know being um being a teacher down the road as I said and also wanting to just play the best that I can um so yeah do you think that makes it hard to enjoy it if there's a an external reward for performing yes I I think it's harder um to a degree a part of me thinks it's more rewarding when you do perform as well um, because more eyes are on you. Um, I guess the pressure's a lot higher. So when you do perform, I think you feel, you do feel better, but you also feel a sense of like relief. And I sort of, as I got older and footy started to get more intense um, and the stakes were a bit higher, I did feel um, after games, you wouldn't even be sort of happy to a degree. You'd be like, I'm actually relieved that's over um, and I'm happy that's done for the time being just because of the pressure, just because of what I actually put on myself to perform. Was training hard then? Um, training was – look, if I'll be honest, I've never been a hard trainer, so that's probably one thing I lacked. Um, but obviously getting through the ranks, training got, you know, harder and harder. Um, and I think, you know – going from amateurs to AFL in the space of two years, I'm a person where um, I need positive reinforcement, positive feedback. And if I get that, I find that um, I have a lot more self-belief and confidence. And I think when you get to those 
higher levels because they critique you so much, which is valid. Um, you know, you start to, particularly a person like me, you start to put so much pressure on yourself that you doubt your actual real strengths and you go away from that. Were you aware of that throughout these times? Um, I was, but I was in denial a bit in terms of um, I didn't sort of want to believe it and not so much believe it, but I guess action anything to do something about it. So what was, so you got picked up at what age at North Beach? And I guess, did you, was it you got picked up from North Beach to go to West Coast Waffle Team and then you got picked up from the Waffle Team? Is that how it went? Yeah, so I um, I played the 2018 season at um, North Beach and we ended up having a really good year that year. Um, I think we lost by a kick after the siren. <laughs> And missed out on a grand final. Um, and then I got a call probably about two months after, so around November, um, from one of the West Coast officials saying that they were going to establish a inaugural West Coast waffle team and they were going to come into the um, into the competition. And um, I said, look, I'll give it some thought, but I still wasn't keen to give waffle a go. I just thought it, it didn't suit my personality and just it just wasn't something I wanted to pursue because... At the time, I was really enjoying teaching. Um, so I said I'd call them back and three months went by um, or two months went by and it got to sort of end of January and um, I just talked to my partner and then I thought I was 24 at the time. I thought, look, if I'm going to try, get picked up, I think it's either now or never given my age and and all of that and um, got back on the phone to them and said, is it too late? And they said, not at all, um, come down. I said, look, I've actually got a holiday booked to Fiji for three weeks. Um, can I come down after that? They sort of were scratching their head um, but said, yep, no worries. First night back after being in Fiji, I told them I'd be doing training over there. I didn't do a thing. Um, had a 2K time trial, came probably second, third last, so it wasn't a good start. But then played the year with them um, and then was drafted, like you said, at the end of the um, waffle season. Did you have aspirations to play AFL when you went from North Beach? Because you, you said like with your age that's sort of now or never. So we, did you have the ambitions? Yeah, I um, <coughs> the time that I met with West Coast after I'd given them a call back before I <coughs> went on the holiday, um, I had a meeting in person with them and they asked me what my intentions were and um, why I sort of reconsidered the, the move to... Um, you know, play with the inaugural team. And I said, look, um, I just want you to know that I want to give AFL one last shot. I actually want to get drafted and I feel like this is going to be a pathway that best suits me. Um, so, you know, no disrespect to the waffle system, but I'd never wanted to, uh, I guess, be a 150-game, 200-game waffle player. Just it's never really been for me. So sort of put all my eggs into one basket and... Yeah, told them I wanted to give it a crack to, you know, make the um make the AFL and ended up eventuating. So when that came to fruition, what was the feeling like? Because you said a lot of the times when you performed, it was almost relief. So you've created this sort of goal in your mind. What was the feeling when you achieved that? Yeah, it was um it was pretty special. Like I still remember it. Um, 
you know, I that year in 2019, because I was so focused on, um, you know, giving it my best shot to actually get drafted, given I was a mature age um, prospect, you know, I, I did things like um, I rarely drank that year. Um, I My gym was um, up to standard. I was training in terms of football sessions a lot harder. Um, so I did everything I could. And, yeah, the moment that I got drafted in that summer um, was just like it was special for my family and myself. I just, you know, I, for me it gave me that belief that I was talking about earlier that, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can actually achieve, you know, big goals that you set out to, you know, achieve from the get-go. What was it like going into the into an AFL system? You know, it's very, very professional and you're not an avid lover of training. So what was it like going from someone who doesn't particularly enjoy training to an AFL system where it's a full-time job? Yeah, it was definitely hard. Um, when you're in the system, it's it's like anything, I guess. It is um, – people think it's this dream job, um, which to a degree it is. And I feel like if you're, you know, one of the top 10, 15 players, um, you know, it probably is a dream job. Um, but if you're sort of like a battler like myself and you sort of come in and you're not really known and um, all you've really played is – a fair amount of amateur footy and, and one season playing waffle, you know, it can be pretty daunting. And I guess you don't really have that background um, belief that you can, you know, you belong here. And I think I struggled with that early. Training wasn't necessarily a huge issue. Um, you know, being in that AFL climate, I've always been big on, um, you know, treating my body right, you know, always going to the gym, etc. But, definitely the training was something I wasn't used to because I didn't put in too much work when I was playing amateur footy. Um, but I wouldn't say it was uh, something that I couldn't do. All your expectations, like, when you came there, like, playing games. I guess I've interviewed a few people, like Taj, and when he got picked up, it was like, oh, I'm going to play for 10 years, 200-game player. But then the reality sets in that it's very difficult system and you know team to crack into so what was like your expectations going in into the year yeah I think so I got drafted at the start of the 2020 season and you know obviously as we know West Coast won the flag in 2018 um, and then those two years after that in 19 and 20 we finished top four twice Um, so I knew that it was going to be a really difficult side to come into Uh, they obviously had a few things play out with Rioli at the time um, with that sort of saga. So I thought there could have been opportunity there to, um, you know, find a space in the team. Um, but, yeah, I um, I didn't actually go into playing AFL going, here's how many years I want to play for. Um, I want to play 150 games. I thought I'm just going to give it a go. Um, and ideally I would have loved to be in the system for – you know, five years would have, if I could have put a cap on it, five years would be, you know, I'm, I've given it a good crack, but I never really put time frame on it. It was more um, just bash down the door till I actually get an opportunity and see what happens once I'm given that. So you weren't, so were you scared of, of failing or? Um, yeah, I was for sure. You know, I spoke to you earlier about, um, 
you know, being a high school teacher, local club, and because when I got drafted, you know, the whole time I was at North Beach, um, I had a lot of, you know, players that I played with going, you know, why do you never give it a crack? Why, why don't you ever give it a shot every single year? So felt like because I'd actually made it now, um, not necessarily that I owed people, but I just felt because it was sort of a long time coming, I thought, you know, there's a lot of pressure on me to actually make the most of this now, not through my own hard work, but because a lot of people, coaches, um, other players, friends, family had actually invested so much time into me. Do you think there was a way that you could train yourself out of that sort of thinking? Um, yeah, so I actually, when I was at West Coast, um, not many people know this, but I spent a lot of time with the sports psych there um, who was, you know, really, really good. Um, and then my mentor coach um, ran a lot of the mindfulness at West Coast. So I did try avenues to, you know, relieve myself of... Um, you know, feeling down in terms of confidence or self-belief. Um, but I don't think I persisted enough and actually gave it a good go to get something out of it. Um, but there was definitely avenues there where um, I persisted and I, well, I tried to actually train my mind to, you know, stop these poor thoughts from creeping in. Yeah, sometimes when you try implement certain tools that you're given, I feel like what happens is it can often get harder before it gets easier because you have so much more awareness around it. So as soon as, whether you're getting coached in a certain way, you start you start thinking like, you start analysing your own thoughts and then you start catching yourself so many times and it, you can and get in that, stuck in that cycle of like being almost hyper aware of how potentially irrational some of your thinking is and then you can be like, oh, this is stupid, it's making it worse. Do you feel like, you didn't persist long enough to see the effects of it? Yeah, I think, like you said, like I'm a massive overthinker with everything. It's not just, um, you know, it's not just sport, whether it's relationships, whether it's um, family, work, uh, footy. I just overthink everything. Um, and that's due to wanting to be a perfectionist. Um, but I think particularly at the time of playing at West Coast, it was... I spent too much time looking at things that I can't control rather than things that I actually could. Um, so these sorts of techniques that we did, you know, mindfulness and whatnot, although I tried, um, sometimes I'd lie there and I'd just, it would just give me a greater opportunity to overthink and just have this sort of self-doubt creeping again. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's something that, you know, as I said, I tried, but I don't think um, my personality at the time um, really suited that. And I also feel like there's so many tools. It's not a one-size-fits-all. So you can't just, you know... For overthinkers, I think meditation can be one of the hardest places to be. Like, I've definitely had overthinking periods, and the last thing you want to do, be, you know, do is sit with your own thoughts, right? But it is one of those things where the hardest thing to do might often be the most worthwhile thing to do. 100%. Do you feel like you need passion and love for the game to succeed? 
or did it feel like a chore to be at football all the time? Um, I definitely think in that environment, because it's full-time, if you don't love it um, and if you're not super passionate about it, I personally, going off, you know, what I know and, and myself, I don't think I ever fully loved it. So, you know, things like training and, um, you know, speaking about pressure and all those sorts of things, because I didn't love it, I would find it hard. I'd find it intense. Um, so I do feel like in that particular environment where, you know, it's a really professional environment, you need to thrive off um, wanting to get better at every opportunity. You need to thrive off, um, you know, how can I do things to an absolute T to get the best out of myself? Um, and that's just found out that it, yeah, probably just not for me in terms of that particular environment like I'm I feel like now having had a few years away I'm a lot more balanced as a person um and I enjoy just going to work and living life not with you know copious amounts of pressure do you feel like it's something that you can do you feel like you can play football now without pressure or do you feel like it's a a battle you're still fighting um I feel like now I can probably play without pressure. I think actually post AFL, the two years after that, going straight from AFL back to amateurs, um, I sort of felt just as much pressure because, um, you know, I had this sort of story where um, I had sort of like a, a pretty dramatic rise to amateurs waffle AFL that I slid all the way, all the way back down to amateurs and... Um, I felt I had to, you know, kick as many goals as I could, um, you know, be a standout, be best on ground every single game because I'd just come from that level. So I think a couple of years after AFL, I really struggled with pressure. Um, but as of last year and coming into this year, um, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm literally going down just to enjoy time with my mates, build connections again. And that's when I know that I'm probably in the right position to play good footy again. When you go out with that mindset of wanting to perform and be best on ground, and when you had games like that, was the feeling relief then, not excitement and, and fun amongst the game? Was it just to just to be good enough, like just to show people that you were good enough yeah, I think, I think when you play to impress people or to show people how good you are, in the moment, um, you're not really cherishing or enjoying the particular things that you're doing. So now when I look at footy, I go, um, you know, I go to training and go, all right, this is a really good avenue to... Um, you know, build relationships. This is a great chance to have fun with my friends, have a kick, keep active. And playing this year, that's sort of another reason why I'm coming back is to get that social connection. And I feel because I've got an emphasis on that, the whole pressure to perform, I feel like now that'll come naturally. Whereas previously, because I was putting so much pressure on myself, it was more about, um, you know, if I did play well, it wasn't about enjoying it with teammates. It was more post-game relief because, 
I had a bit of pressure on me and it was great that I performed. Now, you know, that's all good. I feel like it's where you put your attention, isn't it? Like Absolutely. Attention feels like everything because if you're focusing on the connections and the relationships, like naturally you're a competitor and wanting to be the best, that's, natu- that, that's always going to happen. But I feel like the pressure becomes when, I don't know, because it's so ingrained within you, you're, I don't know, maybe it's out of fear, you don't want to lose it, so you emphasise <laughs> on it so much. But for me, I start thinking, okay, what's one thing for me that I know is not going to change? It's when I play on someone, you know, I don't want them, I don't want them to beat me. Like I'm a competitor, perfectionist, very similar to you. Just want to be the best when I'm playing. But what's one thing I'm not that good at? Probably sometimes the connection side. I'm overthinking because my mind is so much on me. It's so internal. So I start to think, okay, if I can focus my energy more to the relationships, more to, you know, keeping fit, I'm running around being healthy, like other than staying at home. If I can really just appreciate that, not put my worth into my performance, I start to feel better about it. 100%. And I reckon last year was one of the first years where um, it's not just people giving me feedback or telling me what I can do better or, um, you know, how good I'm doing. It's me actually um, giving other people feedback. So it's not you just looking out for yourself all the time and noticing what you're doing wrong. It's actually, um, you know, taking a step back and, and seeing others on the field as well. And I think that's something I've developed through age is just, you know, obviously footy is a, a team sport, but when you put so much pressure on yourself and you go into games thinking, I need to do this, I need to do that, you know, all eyes are on me, whatever that may be, because that's how you feel. Mm. Um, you know, you actually take away from the important parts of the game and that's playing with friends and also, you know, actually helping others. A team sport is about helping people, right? So, you know, when you're so focused on your on yourself and your attention changes from the team to you, you know, you're not really buying in to a degree. I don't know how you relate to this, but I've had games where I we've we've won, but I've played bad so I couldn't enjoy it. But that's just because of my personality and you feel almost guilty as well. And that like I this is what I was feeling like I knew it was wrong. Like I knew I shouldn't be feeling that way, but I like couldn't help it. That was just the way, I, the mindset I had at the time. So I wasn't performing well. The team won, but you're not content. I've felt that way too many times, but it's also not that, you know, not that I'm trying to twist it into a good thing, but the thing with that is it's also you take, as we were discussing earlier, you take pride in your performance so if you don't perform, although it's a team game as we were discussing, it's also like, how did I best contribute to the team today? Um, but I think maybe people like yourself and me, we always look at, you know, we want to play the best we can every single week. And sometimes it just doesn't happen, whether you have an off day or your opponent's better than you, whatever that may be. I often, you know, if we win and we have a great win, but, you know, I have a quiet game, you sort of sink into your own self thoughts and after the game might not, you know, sing the song as loud or whatever that may be. Um, but it's also, it's taking pride in your performance too. Um, but that's something, again, I've definitely gotten better with as well. I feel like it's having a healthy ego 
Like absolutely. Like the hell. That's the hardest thing. It's like you want to have pride in your performance, but you don't want that to take away from what it is. It's a team game, and connecting with others, and actually winning the game of football, which is what you're meant to play. Like it's almost you're almost playing two games. It's the game out there and the game in your head. Absolutely. Yep. Spot on. Do you, what's it been like being a teacher and then also being able to to play football? Do you think they've sort of helped each other in any way? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, you know, I've been really lucky to teach where I teach and, um, you know, growing up where we grew up, we live in a really good community. So um, definitely having that footy aspect and particularly, as I mentioned before, playing close to school, um, it's really a lot easier to develop relationships because kids, you know, a lot of them do come down and, and watch you play footy and they do share an interest um, with that. So I think in terms of rapport and uh, connection with the kids that I teach, um, it's been it's been sort of one of the best things I've done, definitely. What's it like when these kids look up to you but you're still fighting you know demons in your head almost yeah it's oh it's definitely tough um you know i'm i sort of do bottle my emotions up um particularly at school because you know you've got to you know being a school teacher you've got to put on this brave face all the time and um you know all eyes are sort of on you because you're the one you know conducting the lesson um so yeah it's definitely hard if you you know if i let's say i played a really bad game of footy on the weekend and there was a lot of kids down there um you know come back to school monday i'd be like you know god like you know find it tough but um for me it's just i i try keep i do try keep work and footy away and whatever happens on the weekend um hoping that it's you know the right thing in in you know the way I'm playing, but whatever happens on the weekend, I try to steer clear of that. On you know at school, when you bottle up your emotions, how do you deal with it? Because for a long time, I wasn't good with my emotions, and for me, my coping me- my coping mechanism, I was like, I have this feeling that I don't want to go near, so I'm going to overthink it. So like my my way of dealing was was overthinking because I didn't want to go near the feelings. So I guess what was your way? of sort of distracting yourself from those, you know, confronting feelings? Yeah, I think, again, having a partner to actually be able to have um, meaningful conversations with. Um, and then, you know, if I'm if I'm not feeling too good, whether that be um, due to pressures of footy or, um, you know, it could be work-related, whatever that may be, I often use exercise as sort of an outlet as well. Um, because we, you know, we know about the benefits of exercise with endorphins and um, all those positive things. So for me, it's, you know, having conversations with um, mates that I trust, my partner, and using exercise as a form of um, therapy in a sense. Do you feel like with your students, you said you had to put on a bit of a brave face. Do you feel like there's a room for almost to model how to have these emotions and be vulnerable but also still be able to deal with it and get on with it because I feel like what's happened when I was growing up 
all you see with the people around you is brave faces and then you start having these insecurities, these fears, but you don't have any role models who are able to showcase what it's like and what's a good way to deal with how you're feeling. Do you reckon there's a room for you to almost be a leader for these young people with managing your emotions? Yeah, I think um, I think we've already shifted in that space with um, you know the content that we actually deliver as teachers, particularly in the um, health and phys ed environment. Um, you know, we always talk about and deliver lessons on uh, managing emotions and um, you know how people channel their emotions differently. Um, you know how to read someone. Um, you know what to watch out with in terms of body language and um, the way people are speaking. So we actually do do a, a fair amount of work in that space regarding, um, you know, I guess positive health, so positive mental health. Um, but in saying that, I do think there is um, a fair amount to go in the space of um, actually getting students now to be able to express themselves and not find that they need to, you know, hide it or um, even talk about it behind a screen. I think that's a big one as well, actually getting students to have these personal discussions with people they trust face-to-face. What do you think the impact's been of social media on kids? Because I feel like it's it was beginning to come in when I was in primary school and I just feel like I would have been so much better the whole experience without it. Yeah, um, yeah it's funny. We do this... In, in health, we do this um, activity in Year 7 and we look at screen time. So one of our, um, one of our little points is um, technology and how it plays a role in society. And um, in one of the weeks, we get students to um, pull out their phones and um, we have a little section where they need to write down their average screen time for the week and their daily screen time and yeah it was a bit of an eye-opener for me coming back from footy um seeing you know these year sevens pulling out their phone and you know their average um daily screen time would be 11 12 hours um and it's just absurd like it's it's um you know it's pretty crazy and it's pretty concerning you know the bell goes at the end of the day and students are walking to you know, the bats are walking home and they're walking with their friends, but none of them are actually talking. They're all just on their phones. Um, so I think it's definitely, I think it's more phones these days are a, a con rather than a pro. Um, I think we're using them in the wrong space and even that's myself, um, you know, too much screen time in terms of social media and it's one of those things you always want what other people have. And we need to remember, which has been brought up before, that um, you know, people only a lot of the time see highlights of other people's lives. So it's not sort of how it's actually portrayed. Yeah, it's definitely the big highlight reel as we as we talk about. But that's why I feel like trying to have a space with these conversations because I don't know about you, but I don't want to live my life comparing myself to other people especially when you don't actually realise, and I've actually come to realise, people are not as happy as you think they are. And there was a famous quote, I can't remember it, but I think it was um, Roosevelt or something, and it was about how it's actually quite easy to be happy, but the problem is we wish 
to be happier than other people and we often overestimate how happy they are. Yeah, I, I honestly think, um, you know, really we don't know the um, story behind what people are going through or the battles that they're actually facing. And I think social media is just that perfect opportunity to um, express and display how good your life is from uh, sometimes a shallow point of view. Um, but yeah, it's, it's it's something that I sit here going, um, you know, giving all this information out and saying how bad screen time is and et cetera. But, you know, for me, I, I really, something I need to get better on is, um, you know, comparing myself to others too. Because I, I still do that and um, I think it's quite easy to when you're, um, you've got a phone at the forefront of, you know, your face every day. So it's definitely something that I can work on as well. Yeah, it's, you can fall into the trap of it, but when you compare yourself to these people, do you think about the price tag? Like often you'll be like comparing yourself, but it'll only be one little aspect of them. But I feel like if you're comparing yourself to someone, it's only fair if you take the whole package. Like you can't just have their house or you can't just have their car or their relationship or their job. You have to take everything that comes along with it. Yeah, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Um, I wouldn't say I look at it that way though. I look at, you know, you do want a little piece of everything. I think it's, you know, as humans, it's sort of how we are. And um, yeah, for me, as I said, I'm still actually trying to, you know, learn and work through that I'm myself, I'm my own person. And, um, you know, I, I need to get better at actually going, this is my life these are the things that I can do better, this is what I need to focus on. Um, not that these people aren't relevant to me, but you know, I need to just channel my energy and my thoughts towards how can I be the best I can. Do you find it hard to feel proud of yourself and give love to yourself? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, um, I don't post achievements. I don't um, ever really reflect and go, hey, I've done you know, this, I've, um, you know, graduated uni, all those sorts of things. I I don't know. I just feel like when you achieve something, um, and I'm not sure what others are like, I can only speak about myself, but when I achieve something, my thing is, all right, I'm on to the next thing. And I won't stop for a minute and go, you know, hey, good job. <laughs> it's always, you know, it's always, all right, but now I need to do this. You know, so for me, um, as I mentioned before, I dropped out of school in year 10 and never did I think I would go to uni and graduate with a education degree. And I actually haven't properly, um, you know, given myself a little bit of, um, I guess, positivity around that because it's always been, okay, now I need to make AFL or now I need to buy a house or I need to get a partner. So I've always chased more and... I think actually stopping and being able to go, you know, good job, like I'm proud of myself for doing that is something that for me I can definitely um, get better. We often make these invisible goalposts and then once we achieve, once we achieve the thing that we've set out to do, you know, we realise, you know, we just want to get to the next one and and the feeling isn't one of, Love and being proud. Of, it's not being proud of yourself. It's it's almost like 
like we've talked about before, like relief and like, oh, like maybe I'm good enough. And then, oh my God, I've, I've got to achieve this. What was the thing, the feeling that you were chasing? Like once you got to the top of the mountain, what was the story that you were telling yourself that if I achieve this, it would mean this, like I'd be happy, I'd be successful, people would like me. Was there an inner voice dictating the mountain? Uh, yeah, I definitely think for in terms of sport, there was. I mean, a lot of my um, achievements with study or um, buying a house comes from um, just intrinsic sort of motivation. Um, but definitely the, the sport aspect was you know, I need to, to a degree, I need to do this because, um, you know, it will be amazing for other people. Mm. You know, as silly as that sounds, um, particularly the, the, the sport component was always doing it for other people. Do you feel like you, it happens and you don't really think about it at the time? Do you feel like... With hindsight now, you get a lot more clarity on why you were doing certain things. But at the time, you sort of just sell yourself this story and almost trick yourself into doing certain things and almost justifying why you're feeling certain ways. But almost now, it's you look back and you're like, I wish I did that differently. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I've spoken a little bit about, you know, what I'd do differently in hindsight earlier on. But I think also that's life, like if we knew the outcomes when we're in the present, I don't necessarily think, or, or some of the actions that we take, we actually wouldn't um, follow through with them. So with that comes learning as well. Um, but through, you know, achieving these sort of things, um, I think at the end of them, when you actually look at it, you, you do feel a sense of pride. Um, but for me, it comes with time as well. I, um, I sort of reflect over time because when it happens, it's it's that sense of relief. Oh, that's out the way now. Or oh, I've I've finally done that. Whereas I feel like time gives you that to actually look back on and go, you know, this is actually what I've done through hard work, through um, you know, dedication and sacrifice and all these things. That's why I think it's important to to fail because you learn so much. And but people are so scared to fail, so it's this paradox like success is 99% failure like you learn so much but we want to be successful so we avoid failure because we think that'll make us successful we think the avoidance of failure means success but I think once you realize that failing allows you to find clarity on how to get success it's the best way but when you're in when you have that sort of fear mindset it's really really hard to take action because you want to be successful you, you but you can't you can't start at the finish line. Yeah, for sure. I think I think failure means feedback as well. So you you learn a lot about yourself in the process. Um, because if you fail, it's always um, you have to answer questions in your head, being like, "Why did I fail?" Mm. Um, so you sort of get that. Whether you get that feedback externally or you know yourself, okay, th- these are the reasons why I wasn't successful this time. Um, well, I think the quote I read in a book was, failure is information, information is knowledge, knowledge is power, therefore failure is power. Yeah. So just being able to f- to fail, but do you f- do you f- did you find it hard when 
when you're doing things for other people, there's it's all, does it feel like your failure was their failure? Is that the story that you were telling yourself? Um, at times, yes. Um, but again, because I was in my own head and I guess not thinking um, the way you'd sort of normally think and analyse it and, and whatnot, at the time I I wasn't, you know, thinking about that. So I think in a way, like now that I look at it, I go, look, most probably. Um, but in that moment, I, you know, I wasn't necessarily thinking about those things. So, so specifically, what would you do differently if, obviously we can't get our time again, but what, what would you have done differently, say, if you were on the West Coast list? Um, oh, the... There'd be a few things. I think as well with my time, you know, there was a lot there was a lot of uncertainty in the world with COVID and it was just a unique year. Um, I think for me, what I would have done differently is I guess at the time, because those sort of events happened so quickly with, um, you know, the whole amateurs to AFL within two years sort of seemed like a bit of a like a whirlwind um, and I just thought at the time I just thought things were just meant to work out because that was the only time I'd given AFL a crack mm. and it paid off so I thought everything was just meant to be it was just this story that lined up and I just wasn't going to fail so not that I got caught up at all, but, um, you know, I just... Complacent? Oh, uh, a little bit, yeah, a little bit. I just thought <laughs> amateur to AFL is very, very different, but my whole life playing sport, um, a lot of it came without thinking too much. So I just thought it would, you know, keep on sort of rolling on like that. So, you know, it was a bit naive of me, Um but, you know, I, for me, I have not many regrets about um, leaving the system and what I could have done better. Like I feel in terms of headspace and, and where I'm at, um, I, I personally don't think professional sport suited me. Um, I don't think it suited my type of personality and um, in terms of actually enjoying my life and being a balanced person, I think leaving AFL was actually, um, you know, a really good thing. Do you feel like that's malleable or do you feel like it is just too set in stone who you are or do you feel like there is room for improvement to to almost be in a position where you could have done it differently but almost you weren't ready but do you feel like are you motivated to get to a headspace where you could play sport without that pressure that you put on yourself? Yeah, I, I think what I'm trying to say there is... Um, if I I'm I'm one of those people where um, when we talk about sport, if I don't have the ability to play just my natural game with instinct, then um, I'm one to overthink a lot. Mm. And when I overthink, I, you know, as said earlier, I um, a lot of self doubt creeps in, and uh, my mind sort of goes off with the fairies. So um, is that yeah. hard with? so much coaching the higher it gets just incredible you are you are so micromanaged so it's um it's things like instead of just 
you know, worrying about, um, you know, getting the ball or um, even where my opponent is, is oh, I need to be this far off the stoppage because this play is going to happen here, 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 whatever that may be. And I just got so involved in my head with um, what my role was that it just took away from my actual ability to play the game. So you started focusing on what you're meant to do rather than what you know you can do. Yeah, yeah. I just – I wasn't playing – it ended up getting to a point where um, I was trying to do every – you know when you try to do everything right (laughs) and turns out not much goes right? Yeah. I was just trying to be this perfect role player because that's what I was. I wasn't in the team to, you know – do what I was doing at amateur level. Like I was the biggest battler of all time. Um, So, you know, it was more about how can I perfect my role and do everything I can for this position and in this team that I can stay in this team. And that went away from my ability to naturally, you know, kick goals or um, set up goals or, um, you know, whatever that may be. So, yeah, then that's when for me all that self-doubt creeps in um, you lose your confidence, um, you start reading things on social media um, and it just really, you know, kills you as a, as a person and as a player in that sort of environment. Mm. What's that like, getting criticism? Like, I've definitely fa- felt it, but not when you can see it, like, on a screen and you don't even... Like, I feel like criticism's so different when you know who's saying it and you can see them versus some anonymous person online you haven't met yeah um yeah it's definitely really challenging and you know you asked me if i had my time again would i do something different and um it you know another thing for me would be to limit social media at the time i i I wish i didn't have social media because it's hard not to read those things um so if i could actually do something differently it would be whether you've had a good game or a bad game, it would be not to do, not to read things online because, you know, I made my debut, it went pretty well, we had a good win and um, you start reading all these good things and you're like on top of the world. Um, Everything went well that day. Like it was an amazing day. And then, you know, three weeks later, you play Richmond on the Gold Coast and you have five possessions, you get holding the ball and you lose by five goals. and you've got people messaging me. I'm getting message requests on Instagram being like, I hope you never play for the club ever again. And it's like you've gone from the highest of highs three weeks ago to literally rock bottom. Like I was just such a shell of a person. And I remember celebrating my, not even celebrating, but having my 25th birthday over in the hub. And pretty much for the whole day, I was just in my room like, and this was, two days after the the Richmond game and I I literally just wanted to get on a flight home. I was just so over it and I pretty much knew then that um, my time playing for the club was going to be very limited. Like I'd just been dropped a day before um, for the Essendon game and I just, yeah, I knew that things were probably going to be pretty tough for me to get back into the team because it was late into the season and we were approaching finals because I think we were third or fourth at the time. Yeah, what was that whole experience like living – how long did you live over there for? Uh, in in 
uh, June or July, we were on the Gold Coast for about six weeks. Um, and then... Was it just you? Uh, living in... Like your partner didn't go? No, no. So I was just by myself. Um, that Gold Coast trip, I was injured. So I, I spent a lot of time injured as well. So um, when I got drafted, one of the sort of deals was I, I had to get a shoulder recon. So I missed the whole preseason. Um, I think I started training at the very start of March. So I missed all preseason. I've never been a fit sort of bloke. Like I, I haven't ever had the capacity to run all day. Um, and then when I was when we went to the first hub, which was in around June, um, we'd spent six weeks there, um, and I'd done a like a hamstring tendon. So I had like a lot of cortisone injections. Um, so that hub there was essentially like a like a little holiday. I probably treated it too good. So we're on the Gold Coast, like the weather was amazing. Um, had a few close mates at the club who were also sort of injured. So we were all rehabbing together and because we knew we weren't going to play in the foreseeable future, um, we're just like having a good time on the Gold Coast. And and then, yeah, the second hub was, I think, late August. Yeah, late August, um, September time. And that was when we boarded from Perth to Gold, uh, to Gold Coast. That's when I was in the team and I'd played a few games. <clears throat> so um, we boarded the flight on like a Tuesday um, and then we played Richmond on the Thursday night. Um, I think it was first versus third at the time. That's the game I was speaking to you about where we lost by, you know, five goals. And, um, and yeah, because that game was so early on into the second hub, um, that four weeks that were in that um, second hub was just like hell for me because I knew that probably wasn't playing again and there was just no outlet for me there. Although I had, you know, good mates at the time um, that I could talk to and whatnot. I was away from partner. I was, I was away from family. Um, and I was just completely out of my comfort zone. I just was, you know, pretty much rock bottom then. Do you find it hard then if you didn't even have a pre-season? I, if that was me, that would just be that question in the back of your head. Like, what was if I got fully fit, wasn't injured, got a full opportunity to be at my best? Are those thoughts with you? Definitely. Um, and, but I don't sit here or I've never, um, post getting delisted, I've never gone, uh, if I had a pre-season, if I, you know, I would have still been on a list or whatever. Um, it is what it is. So, you know, but in terms of giving myself the best opportunity to perform and make, I guess, a sustainable, uh, lasting effort to play I think not having a pre-season definitely hurt my chances um, and then you know doing a hamstring and all these things so all these things were going through my head um, because it was COVID there was going to be two three uh, further list cuts that year as well so pretty much when I got drafted like it sounds really negative but I sort of was always on the back foot um, and it's just something I had to deal with yeah. So what was the whole delisting experience like when you had that when you got dropped after that game did you think that that would be the last game? Uh I did, yeah. I thought unless there was you know injuries or you know whatever that may be covid at the time um 
and again, as I mentioned, I um, I more have a mindset where I like to say it's you know realistic, but I can be a bit you know pessimistic at times, um, and always look sort of glass half empty rather than glass half full. So once I played that final game, I sort of thought, you know, I played my last game for the club, um, and yeah, that. The delisting was was tough, but the the thing about my position was um, I'd sort of been bracing for it for about six weeks. So when I did get delisted, um, although it sort of is a dagger, it it wasn't as hard as sort of um, other people because I'd I'd braced for it. Um, one thing I'm really lucky is that I'd worked hard previously and. I had gotten an education, um, I have a job that I can go back to. So I had a contingency plan. Mm. So it made the whole transition back to um, normal life a lot easier. Yeah, what was that transition period like? Like, I feel like if you're on a list, there's still like, you just don't know how long you're going to be playing for. But then you're back, back to a job. I guess what's that? overall feeling like when you have to almost back to reality a bit um yeah first year so 2021 and that's um you know i was i was talking about playing for north beach those first two years that i'd been delisted um that was a really challenging time with um pressure and uh you know going back to not square one but um you know going back to i guess normal sort of everyday life um but teaching was yeah the first year was really really tough um luckily got some really good colleagues at work and um you know a lot of the kids at the time post my delisting um I was really close with because I was sort of um you know young really young age and I'd just gotten to the school a few years before I got drafted that was sort of a blessing um but definitely that year post AFL was um, work-wise and footy-wise was quite challenging. You love? Do you love teaching? I enjoy it. Yeah, I wouldn't say I love it. Um, I, I really like it. I don't think it's. I don't think it's going to be me forever. Um, but right now and the last six years, like I've made some unbelievable memories. Um, I've got some you know, memories with students that, you know, and relationships with students that I never thought I'd have. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think it's a forever job, but for the foreseeable future, um, I think it's me. What sort of other passions do you have? It's a really good question. I'm sort of still finding that out. Um, I'm, I do like the, uh, I do like the education system in terms of going into uh, vocational education so um, liaising with students one-on-one about um, tertiary studies and finding apprenticeships um, and just alternative pathways so I think that's something that I wouldn't mind getting into um, and not actually being a face-to-face classroom teacher where I'm you know one on 30 um, I'd really like to do some one-on-one stuff where uh, I'm still in a school but I'm more uh I've got a leadership role in terms of helping students um, partake in 
workplace learning or tertiary studies or um, apprenticeships, those sorts of things. Yeah. I'm interested in your take on this. I want to know what you think makes a good football culture. I would say... That's a good question. Um. (laughs) My take on a good culture is I feel like there's clarity. I feel like you can be yourself. I feel like it's the most important thing because I feel like the sum of its parts are always going to add up to be more. So if you can get every single person to contribute their best, it's going to add up to so much more. I feel like when people almost are in their shell, they have to sacrifice themselves, it's really hard. Obviously, there's a system and people need to go within the system, but it shouldn't be at the expense of what their strengths are. So they shouldn't be compromising their strengths. I feel like there's clarity is a massive one across all levels. Like People need to be knowing what they're doing, why they're in the team, what their roles are, because I feel like there's nothing worse than playing a game and you don't know, like, you don't know how to measure yourself. Like, like I got four touches, like, but, like, did I do my role well? Like, I don't know. Like, if you know what, you do, what you're meant to do going into a game, then you know that it's okay. Because if you're told you've got to shut down this player, you're not worried about getting disposals. But if you're not told that, you might be thinking, oh, I need to get, I need to get heaps of the ball. So I feel like clarity's a massive one. Um, and then I guess just connection. Um, and sort of good standards, but if if people are on the same page with the same goals, um, but they can be their selves within that system, I feel like everyone's on the journey together, but together, but in their almost unique way because they can still be themselves and they know why they're doing what they're doing. I think, yeah, I think the biggest one for me is um, is what you touched on there. Everyone being themselves. I think um, you know, although in terms of the playing aspect, how you've all got to buy in, um, play your role, etc. Um, I think sometimes in terms of footy culture, it's um, it can be a bit full on in, in terms of being sort of the one banner, the one being this sort of one personality where it's sort of loud and boisterous and whatnot. Um, so I do think actually just having individuals who, you know, can – just be themselves at the end of the day, express themselves in a way that they feel comfortable with. I think that's the biggest one for me. I've never been someone who's like uh, around a footy club extremely loud. I don't necessarily, um, you know, involve myself too much um, in terms of that sort of um, that sort of social aspect. Mm. Um, but, yeah, just getting it right in terms of treating each individual differently. Yeah. Jack wanted me to ask this question. Um, he wants to know, I don't know this time, I don't think I was around, but in 2017 approximately, there was a I I know what's coming. home final <laughs> against Frio or something. Yeah, CBSA. Um, can you tell us that story? He says you kicked f- what, four in the last quarter, four goals in the last quarter to win North Beach the game. Can we have a bit of... um? Insight into that story? Um, yeah, so 2017 was probably the year where um, it was the most enjoyable year. 
we finished top that year, um, everything just went right leading up to, to that game. And, um, you know, speaking about footy culture and, and footy clubs, we just socially, it was just an amazing time. Like we had um, really good time off field, but then, you know, we had blokes like Steve Mansfield, Michael Italiano, Mitch Dwyer, Bo Withridge. We just had all these blokes who were just giving 100% every single week. So it's just a time which was like incredible. Um, so we made the prelim final, um, and this was yeah win and we get into the grand final. So finished top. We played a home home final and um, mate, it was the worst game we'd played that season. Like we were just so far off it. Um, we went into halftime about five goals down. Got a r- absolute rocket from Heinze, um, which he could deliver pretty regularly. And then ended up, yeah, creeping our way back in the third quarter. And, um, yeah, last quarter, just, yeah, I guess things went my way. Um, How many did you kick? Oh, I think in the last, yeah, I think four's right. But I think you can remember about seven points that day. So um, probably should have kicked a few more, but that's the story of my career, kicking points. Um, but, yeah, huge crowd at North Beach. It was just... Um, yeah, it's, it's funny. And then one of Jack's good mates, um, I ended up two days later doing my first day of relief at Corrine. And um, one of Jack's, yeah, good mates was in the class in year 11 then because Jack would have been year 11 then. And, um, yeah, I remember him, uh, he was sending Snapchats around. And, yeah, it was a funny time, actually. He said they were chanting your name. What was that like? Do you, uh, do you remember that? Yeah, I, yeah, I do. It's, um, yeah, that's what I mean why... I loved, or I, I love playing amateur footy because you've got so many young kids coming down and um, teenagers and whatnot, particularly from the school I teach at. Um, yeah, the the social involvement from the crowd and whatnot, it's um, it definitely adds to the the environment down there. It was a special day. To be honest, it's it's probably my most cherished memory at the club. Mm. That's that's what I was about to ask. Your favourite footballing memory. That be it. Uh, at amateur level, yeah, that game for me stood out. Just, um, yeah, it was my birthday that day too, and just, <laughs> um, yeah, it just worked out really well. Um, we made it, made a grand final, which I'd never making, uh, I'd never made for North Beach before. Um, so yeah, amateur footy that would be, um, that'd be my favourite day playing for North Beach. So, just to finish off with a few more general things, I'm interested in, um, I guess, you have such a good morning routine and I feel like it'd be good to touch on and how that sets your day up and why you think that's important for not only physical health but your mental health and getting into, um, I don't know, starting the day well so you can have great days. Yeah, I... Um, yeah, my uh, myself and my partner, we yeah we do a five six k walk every single day um, on the coast. So we're really lucky that you know we're we're not far away from um, where we walk on the coast. And um, part of the reason why we do it, we got a very energy driven staffy. So <laughs> um, to make sure that he's not causing trouble around the house whilst we're we're teaching, um, we sort of need to drain his energy in the morning. But um, yeah, we just see it as an opportunity to um 
talk about the day ahead or um, what went on yesterday. Um, and I just find it, you know, for me, exercise and enjoying actually being out in the, the sunlight and the environment, particularly where we live, where the ocean's right there, sort of at our doorstep. It's, um, you know, it, it's good to be able to get out and um, enjoy it. And also, I'm really big on routine. I think um, routine and structure sets you up as a person and sets up your day. So, um, you know, when we've got sort of the coast as our backyard, I find that a really good avenue to sort of unwind or or start the day yeah i love that so what are the plans for this year i guess teaching and football yeah so um teaching is going to be very similar so still uh still at kareen for for this year and um i think i'll start to to look a bit deeper in terms of um you know going into that pathways um career and and start inquiring and and seeing what um criteria i need or or need to meet to be able to do that um and then yeah so played down south at dunsborough last year and i'm gonna um come up here again and and play another year at north beach so um, a lot of change there this year but um yeah i think we're on the right track and i'm actually looking forward to it get back with um with the boys again. Yeah, you miss me by yeah. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, we but don't. yeah. If, if I'm not too old. Yeah. Anyway, is there anything touch on before we wrap it up? Um, no, I'm pretty happy with that. Shaky start, but I reckon I reckon yeah, second little, half was good. Yeah, a few little edits to be made, but yeah, um, perfect. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, thanks for coming on. No, welcome. It's good to finally um be able to chat. It's been a while. Yeah. Well, thanks, 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 Dawson. Thanks for listening, guys. Cheers. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.